Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode 37, Riddle Me This, Riddle Me That, where we will be looking at chapter 72 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of riddles. Before we begin, a little description of our podcast. I'm going to try to do this fast for all of you who have listened to this 36 times before. Anyway, each week we will be examining a section of the book, The Name of the Wind, through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phrenemos of the week. <sighs> After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact and finally wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Wow. And you weren't even under threat of raspberries there. Hope you didn't get all of your fast talking out of the way because it's your turn for the recap this week. But first, some disclaimers. <laughs> first of all, as always, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Though, as always, we're not opposed to it if that should change. Second of all, our discussions naturally assume that either A, you've already read the main books, The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as the other ancillary novellas and short stories in the continuity, or B, you're a weirdo who goes to palm readers to discover the future, and so all of your life is filled with spoilers. Needless to say, ahead, here be spoilers. Finally, a word to our community, while it's perfectly fine to critique the text as you read it, we won't stand for any abuse of the author responsible for it. And now that we've got our disclaimers out of the way, Get your fast-talking boots on, because it's time for you to give us a 45-second recap. I don't want to wear shoes. Or boots. Either way, hope you're fast, for your sake. Otherwise, there will be raspberries. I don't think there will be raspberries. Alright, we'll see, though. The clock will be the determining factor there. So, you ready? I am. In three, two, one, go. This chapter is long and full of exposition about Kvoth, Denna, Kvoth's past, Denna's new patron, and the Chandrian. Kvoth and Denna spend the day investigating a burned-out farm and looking for her patron, whom Kvoth has dubbed Master Ash. The chapter ends with the two of them sharing food, a song, and resting together near a stream, which I find cute and romantic, as long as you ignore the tragedy and carnage they left behind them at the top of the hill. 24.05 seconds. No raspberries for you. Yes! Good job. Thank you. Alright, so let's dive in. Shall we? We shall. So this chapter concerns the riddles of both Quoth, Denna, and also the Chandrian themselves. We start with the obvious whodunit, who burned up the Mothin's farm, and then we also have other ancillary mysteries related to it. Why is Denna there? Why did Denna's patron send her there? Who the fork is Denna's patron? And what's his business in all this? And then there is that ever-present riddle about Kvothe's motivations. Namely, why does he care about all this? So, we kick things off with the barman in Traben trying to shake Kvothe down for the cost of care for Denna, which, I mean, that's pretty shady. Yeah, he complains that he spent money on bandages and a woman to watch over her, which is probably a little more like a guard than someone watching over her. Yeah. We also find out that the constable and the mayor were making themselves maybe a little too friendly, essentially trying to pump Denna for information. Yeah. In a way that sounds ooky and uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, I can understand wanting to find out what happened at the farm since she's basically the only witness to a crime. But, yeah, the way that they were going about it seems overly judgmental and... A little rapey. Yeah. Yeah. So, Kvothe is worried that Denna is just going to disappear if he takes too much time to do anything, so he doesn't fight. He just gives the barman some money and goes outside and is relieved that Denna hasn't run off. It's a little reductive view of her, I think. I agree. They agree to go to the Moth and Farm hop a cart. We hear, I'm heading past Old Borrow Rill, which is also the name of the chapter. 
we understand that Kvothe is just mishearing because of an accent or something, or it doesn't seem like the farmer that they hitched a ride from is enunciating. He doesn't seem to be terribly talkative to begin with. Or terribly happy to have these two kids ride along with him. We get a lot of Denna and Kvothe dancing circles around one another and not trying to find out too much about one another while still very curious about one another. And then we get a ton of seven-word sentences that are a bunch of exposition. If you ever had any theories that Patrick Rothfuss was in the pocket of big highlighter in an attempt to get us to buy more highlighters, this would be your evidence. Orange highlighter, to be specific. They talk about how Kvothe just found the note, how Denna realizes that it may have been silly to expect that he would use his window instead of his door to get into his room. And then we find out that, lo and behold, Denna is trying to make the mysterious stranger that came and talked to her while she was waiting for Kvothe into her patron. And we also find out that the patron-to-be is really just shady as fork. Yeah, that is a little concerning. Like, if you get a job, and then as part of the hiring process, they put you through a whole bunch of elaborate tests that aren't spelled out as tests ahead of time, that's usually a red flag. And the ability to be secretive... <sighs> I mean, I've signed an NDA to take a job before, but that's different, right? Right, but you can at least tell people, hey, I'm working on this thing and I signed an NDA. She is like, I will probably be beaten half to death with a cane if I tell you anything. Yeah, either way, it does not lend confidence. Nope. Skipping forward just a bit, she refuses to tell Kvothe the name of her future patron, or her wannabe patron. And so Kvothe suggests that she just makes up a name for him. And she insists that he does it instead. Which, of course, leads to Kvothe is a namer. There's obviously a lot of theories about the identity of this man. Kvothe initially is just saying random names, and he says, Fedric the Flippant, Frank, Farron, Faru, Fordale. Now, one thing that we know about the Chandrian that we know as Cinder, his true name is Ferule. I think we're meant to draw that connection here. And then when the wind picks up a whole bunch of dust and leaves and a leaf lands in Kvothe's mouth, lo and behold, it's an ash leaf. And what's another word for ash? But cinder. So I thought that was an interesting little bit of foreshadowing. Now, part of me thinks that that's almost too easy. And then part of me remembers that Kvothe walked the horse through a stream full of solvents. And I think it's not too easy. It's possible. There's part of me that's really hoping it's more elaborate than that, but... I think that if we had gotten the story in quicker succession, kind of the way that Game of Thrones is going, everyone has theorized all of this to death. And for those of us who are plugged in, we can kind of see where things were at least originally going. And I honestly would rather them go the way that they were originally going than change because we figured it out. That's true. There's something to be said for at least following through on the mystery you set up and not after the fact trying to make up for it. But as we all know, Kvothe is a namer. And I think he accurately named Master Ash. <laughs> it definitely does seem to be fitting. Considering also that the Mothin farm has been burned, and both he and Denna wind up with ash in their mouth, not just from the tree, Denna suggested maybe the little leaf that flew into Kvothe's mouth was an elm, which you get ash and elm and Rowan too. But he sticks with ash. In the same way that he named one sock, I think, I just, think he's right. So they get to the farm and do a little bit of digging around and Denna finally comes out and asks Kvothe why he's there. Because while I'm sure she was perfectly happy to see a friendly face unlooked for, there's still that question of, now why do I see this friendly face? 
and especially if she's spending time with someone who has a lot of trust issues, as her patron-to-be does, one would at least want to know the motives of a new traveling companion. One thing that was really interesting to me is this is where we see Kvothe really confronting some of the trauma that he's dealt with in his life. And so I have some compassion here, even as he can't bring himself to actually reveal why he cares about the Chandrian. You know, his first instinct is to lie about it. And he immediately congratulates himself for what he thinks is a pretty good lie, <laughs> because of course he does. And Dunna, to her credit, immediately recognizes it for the horse hockey that it is. Actually calls it horse shirt. And then Kvothe is able to come up with something that I think is a little more honest, even as it doesn't necessarily tell her exactly why he's there. He says, I don't want to lie to you about why I'm here, but I worry what you might think if I tell you the truth. Which is... I think the most honest that Kvothe has been to her in this entire story. And I think it's probably the most honest Kvothe has really been with anybody. This is him... If not actually talking about his wound, at least showing where that negative space in him exists. That takes courage. And as we've noted, it's not easy to talk about things like this for him. On to a little more cuteness. There's a part of this where Denna says, I don't need much delicacy as a rule. I'm no blushing Daisy. And Kvothe says... Daisies don't blush, and goes into this explanation as to why. And in a little bit of behavior that is very similar to something that I do, she says, that was condescending. Afterwards, Quoth and Denna just kind of stare at each other for a bit, which is something that I do when you've done something exasperating. I get that stare a lot. But I do notice that he says... Well, I just wanted you to see what condescension actually looks like. I mean, really, that's probably the most condescending response you could make to that. <laughs> I will also admit that sometimes I say things incorrectly, phrases or sayings, where sometimes I have the wrong word. And sometimes you do that thing where <laughs> you repeat what I said, except you use the right word or the right pronunciation. Yeah, there's a part of me that feels the need to make sure that ultimately the right thing comes out. And it's a compulsion that I have. And I've always been trying to find a way to do so in a way that isn't completely jerkish. See, that's actually completely jerkish. And what I would much, much, much rather you do is just say, I think you mean... It's hard for me to do that. Because paradoxically, I feel that might be jerkish. <laughs> Except I am a much more direct person. And I really hate the passive-aggressive bullshit of, well, she clearly doesn't know what she's talking about, so I'm going to correct her in my own way. Yeah, we've arrived at one of my flaws. <laughs> it's just not a good look on anyone. It isn't. I'm not perfect. Aw, shucks. Hate to break it to you. <laughs> so we get to an explanation of what Denna was doing there for Master Ash, which is kind of just... Recon. He wants to know how many people are there, probably because he wants to kill them all. Because if he is Cinder, he wants to make sure that no one gets away. But apparently he has a way of signaling her, of signaling that he's nearby. And later on, Denna gets kind of suspicious as to why Kvothe asks what color the flame was. That's a very unusual question to ask. Like, if I told you that something was on fire, you would only ask what color were the flames if they were anything other than orange and yellow. But I wonder what this way of signaling Denna is, and if it has anything to do with the blue flame. I was wondering that too, and at the same time, you'd have to think that there'd be a subtler way than blue flames. Are the Chandrian really known for being subtle? No. And you'd otherwise think that you'd see more blue flames all over the place, though, if he's been signaling Denna routinely, like in Imre or wherever. But it's only been two span. But there, he still signaled her. Like, so I'm, I'm just curious what that was, too. And that's a really 
vague way to put it. Normally people would say, he does this to signal me. And instead she says, he has a way of signaling me, which is deliberately vague and obscures the true nature of what it is. And then she mentions that she didn't see who attacked her. She claims that she saw shapes outlined against the fire and then ran like Billy Hell, which is a hilarious phrase to me. And that she must have gone headfirst into a tree and knocked herself out and then woke up in town. To which Quoth says if she had run into a tree, it must have been an oddly shaped tree based on her injuries. And it also asks the question, if this was the Chandrian, why did they leave one survivor? They would have known. And they did. They left a survivor that won't talk. I kind of wonder here if she actually believes that she ran into the tree or if she's hiding what actually happened. Okay, so a couple of different examples. One more serious than the other, and I'll go with that one first. A lot of people who have been abused by partners say that they ran into a door or that they fell or they fell down the stairs or they tripped or they slipped. Somebody told them to say that they slipped. Then there's the more lighthearted response that I had. And if you think about the musical Chicago, he ran into my knife. He ran into my knife 10 times. Okay. I think it's possible that she does believe this. It's possible. I do not think she thinks this. I think that she has been around the block a lot. I think that she has very likely been hit a lot. This society is very patriarchal. Men will not cotton to a woman that talks back. Denna is no shrinking violet or blushing daisy. I'm pretty sure she is aware of what happened to her and that her lie sounds and looks like bullshit. Because she's not dumb enough to think that Kvothe is dumb enough to think that her injuries came from running into a tree. Much like a lot of abused people don't really think that other people believe them. They just want them to so that trouble doesn't get stirred up. And Kvothe holds back on trying to give a detailed diagnosis of her injuries. What we do know is that in the wise man's fear, the Cathay spells out in no uncertain terms, he beats her, you know, under her clothes where you can't see. I don't think she is unaware. I find it notable that Quoth says he almost told her everything, almost told her what happened to his parents. I wonder if Denna knows that she is courting one of the Chandrian, as a potential patron or other, if she suspects, if her past included a run-in with the Chandrian and she is on a similar, if not the same trajectory as Quoth, if she's just getting in with them in a way that he has not yet been able to or sought out. Theories are abound that she is possibly one of the Chandrian and that could potentially be supported by the fact that her verse that she says after the little rhyming, when the hearth fires turn to blue, what to do, what to do, her verse is, see a woman pale as snow, silent come and silent go. What's their plan? What's their plan? Chandrian, Chandrian. She has been described as moon-like. So has Ari. And just earlier in this chapter, like even just a few paragraphs above, it describes her pale skin. So there's definitely some symmetry there, if nothing else. There is also a few instances that I highlighted about how she responds to the sun. She had her face tilted towards the sun. She was lovely as the moon. Not flawless, perhaps, but perfect. This little paragraph actually makes me want to head desk the book. Because, again, with the physical descriptions and caring more about what she looks like than who she is as a person because Quoth really doesn't know we don't know what she is like as a person 
but yeah, there's a bunch of little not so subtle references if you're looking for them to her connection with the sun or the moon, with her connection or potential connection to the Fae. I noticed that Quoth mentions that she always appears unlooked for as far as he's concerned. He likens her to the end of the rainbow. He talks about how when he was a kid one time he went searching for it and got lost in the woods. And she kind of calls him on the bullshit of comparing her to a treasure. I thought that was pretty prescient, and I don't think Quoth quite picks up on that. Specifically, he says, there is much of the Fae in you as well. Meanwhile, as they're exploring the remnants of the farmhouse, they're discovering a few other details. For one, they find that all of the timbers are pretty well rotted away. They're more like driftwood than a fine piece of planking. And for someone who spent a lot of money on a foundation and a two-story house in this setting on the top of a hill where they'd have to get the wood carted up, why would you cheap out on that? Yeah, that's really strange. That's not good building material, even if you're poor. And even as it looks like the fire was actually pretty narrowly contained, the fact that all of the planking in the home is so shaky means that it's not safe to go in the house. Like, we know that rotting wood is one of the associated signs. As well as rusted out metal. Which they find when they go up to the water pump. So, Quoth just feels like he is missing something obvious. That there are a lot of signs that he's just not seeing. And there are. I made my way past the charred windmill to the iron hand pump. I grabbed the handle, leaned my weight against it, and staggered as it snapped off at the base. I stared at the broken pump handle. It was rusted through to the center, crumbling away in gritty sheets of red rust. In a sudden flash, I remembered coming back to find my troop killed that evening, so many years ago. I remembered reaching out a hand to steady myself and finding the strong iron bands on a wagon's wheel rusted away. I remembered the thick, solid wood falling to pieces when I touched it. And he pretty much just falls down. Yeah, he kind of blue screens here a little bit, and Denna notices. You can tell that she's concerned for him, and she thinks that he maybe knows more than he's letting on. Which he does. One other little thing to mention, the foundation of the house and the lower walls were solid gray stone. I noticed that as well. They mentioned gray stone a couple times here. Quoth seems obsessed with getting whatever Denna's possessions are back. And she says that her patron had gotten her to start playing liar. Yeah, you have to figure that there has to be something about that uh, phrase there. There's a little bit of a play on words. Meanwhile, of course, I think Quoth's attitude towards this is as if he's in a 90s adventure game where you have to pick everything up that isn't nailed down and stuff it into your inventory because it'll be useful later. But he's not having much luck. Ooh, one other thing. Mm. How many strings does her lyre have? Seven strings. Same as a lute. Seven. Given to her by who we assume is one of the Chandrian. Seven. Seven strings, seven words, seven Chandrian. Quoth, by way of trying to, I guess, compliment her, says, It's just that your voice deserves better accompaniment than a lyre can give you. You can take that many ways. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's, I think, his way of subtly trying to say that she can do better than Master Ash, and also probably saying that she can do better than him. If he's that astute. At this point in the story, I don't think he is. But maybe he speaks true, even as he's not aware of it. Agreed. So, to reiterate, we have our three verses of the children's song about the Chandrian. When the hearthfire turns to blue, what to do, what to do. Run outside, run and hide. When your bright sword turns to rust, who to trust, who to trust. Stand alone, standing stone. See a woman pale as snow, silent come and silent go. What's their plan? What's their plan? Chandrian, Chandrian. Dun, dun, dun. 
So now Denna knows that Kvothe is looking for the Chandrian. And I do really wonder if she is going down those rabbit holes herself. You know, if I were to start studying under a professor who avoids daylight and cringes at the scent of garlic and covers up all crucifixes in sight, I might jokingly think that he's a Dracula. Especially if all of the mirrors are gone from his home? Yeah, that would be really strange. And then if people started dropping dead and being mysteriously exsanguinated, I might make joking reference about this, even as in the back of my mind, Dracula. I note how many times Kvothe asks, who do you think killed these folks? What do you think happened? And she just doesn't answer. Yeah, I mean, if someone were to ask me, student of someone who is mysteriously Dracula-esque, who exsanguinated these people? And I, who am studying under someone who is mysteriously Dracula-esque, listen to that. There's going to be a part of me that's thinking, oh, obviously he's the Dracula. But I don't want to be the one to say that. But if someone else were to say that it's probably your Dracula-esque professor, I would be like, I know, right? <laughs> and there is a little bit of that, okay, so I'm not crazy. And they both find, I think, a little bit of validation in that. Also, I like the sentence, I'm not a good touchstone for judging your sanity. Which means she's seen some shirt. They look at each other and ask, do you feel crazy? <laughs> to which both of them say, no. So that's either a good thing or a bad thing. Well, I mean, it's like if you ask someone if they are lying, they will say either yes or no. And if they are lying, they will say no. And if they are not lying, they will also say no. This is getting dangerously close to a reference to the labyrinth, which I know you are not doing for you hate that movie. Correct. Because you hate whimsy. I do. You hate the never-ending story. Yep. You basically want to sure. shit on my childhood. N no. I just don't like those movies. They continue on, try to find any possible signs of said Master Ash somewhere nearby that Denna assumes has to be nearby. She doesn't want him to be dead. I don't know why. He seems to have something of value to offer her. What it is, we do not know. We can also tell that their efforts at tracking are kind of half-hearted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, both just is like, ah, I remember a few things about woodcraft. We're just going to kind of faff around in the woods here for a bit, and then uh, we get tired. <laughs> That's pretty much what happens. Another one of those interesting questions... Was there any similarity between this wedding party and my troop? Someone's parents have been singing entirely the wrong sort of songs. And we actually know from having read this before that one of the wedding gifts was a form of pottery, I can't remember exactly what, that has hieroglyphics almost depicting the Chandrian in some form or fashion getting just a little too close to the real part of that story. And it's kind of weird that they tracked it down at a wedding as opposed to earlier in its chain of custody. You'd think that it would be more expedient to kill a few people than half of a town. Yeah, like a few accidental deaths here and there, that wouldn't necessarily raise suspicions, but a giant blue flame explosion? Now... It could be explained away by the fact that it took multiple instances of talking about this thing before it got the attention of the Chandrian. That's possible. But they're not known for doing things sensically or efficiently. No. They want you to leave them alone. They can't get you to leave them alone if they are subtle. They want what every IT person wants, to be left alone. They're just sitting there trying to watch videos on YouTube and shoot the breeze. And instead, someone keeps calling them. And breaking their computers. And so then Quoth does ask what songs Denna sang. And her answers are Penny Whistle, 
Come Wash in the River, Copper Bottom Pot, and Aunt Emmy's Tub, which I kind of want to hear now. <laughs> I know. We have to have the series. I want the series. I want Lin-Manuel Miranda to write all of these songs. He was supposed to. I want it to happen. Damn it. In the words of the philosopher Jagger, you can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you'll find. You get what you need. Thank you, Mick. Anywho, <laughs> I think the best part of that is at a wedding? <laughs> I mean, it's like if someone requested Closer by Nine Inch Nails at a wedding. Actually, I'm going to say that it's probably less like that and more like if someone asked for a song that was full of innuendo because let's be very 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 clear closer there is no innuendo okay it'd be like if someone requested milkshake my milkshake brings all the boys to the yard etc uh-huh i knew what you were talking about don't look at me like i'm crazy you're not crazy Although you are with me, so... <laughs> <laughs> I might be out of touch, but I am not crazy. So they give up on trying to find Master Ash and go hang out at the creek. Which is probably more enjoyable. I find it interesting that Quoth mentions the storybook clues we hope to find once again failed to show themselves. There's no torn clothing. There's no branches that are comically snapped there are no very deep footprints or boot prints but they did find some mushrooms acorns mosquitoes and raccoon scat that's kind of the trifecta right there <laughs> <laughs> so again with the references to if this was a story she would have gone off and bathed in the river or the creek and quoth would have been called to rescue her from Whatever little creature was nibbling at her toes, and they would have had a little tryst, and all of that jazz. But this is not a storybook story. And so, Quoth does not pursue her in any way that is untoward. They wash their faces off, and they eat an apple. In a really, really cute way, I gotta say, this is actually kind of adorable, and it's really sweet in a way that is like, oh, you are still just a kid, aren't you? Because they shared an apple, passing it back and forth between bites, which is close to kissing. If you've never kissed before. And it's a very chaste thing overall. But there's this sweet ending of Denna sang for him. And it was a verse that he had never heard before. Which, going back on... Of course Kvothe knows every single song and every verse that could ever be in every single song. But I will not repeat it here as she's saying it to me and not to you. I will keep it to myself. And I think that that's really sweet and lovely. But I want to know what it is. Because I think it might actually have some clue as to what the heck this whole chapter boils down to. Before we're done... Are there any bits and pieces that we could delve into on our behalf, on the behalf of the reader, on behalf of our listener, that you would like to expound upon regarding Master Ash and this tragedy at Barrow Hill? So my other theory is that Master Ash is related to the Amir. The Amir sort of fulfill this role of if the Chandrian are the big bad, the Amir are the big good. And the thing about big good types is, while they may be good with the capital G, oftentimes they are not with the little g. They can be just as abusive and manipulative and destructive as the so-called bad guys in a story, but they just happen to believe that they're doing it for the greater benefit. And that's another possibility. And it also speaks to the fact that, heck, maybe even Cinder himself is someone who infiltrated the Chandrian on behalf of the Amir. One doesn't know. There's a whole bunch of weird things that could happen there. 
my opinion on the Amir is that they may see themselves as good guys or people working for the greater good, but you don't want to run into them in any way. Kind of like the church and the crusades? Yeah, the Knights Templar specifically. That's the organization that comes most to mind. You may have, they may sometimes show up as heroes in some stories, but for a lot of them, they're really not. <laughs> and as I say, they believe they're doing it for the greater good. And that can be just as terrifying, if not more. And using and abusing one young lady, I don't think that they'd balk at it in your theory. Correct. We later learn that the Duke of Gibeah, who is this renowned sadist who tortured his villagers, was related to the Amir in some fashion, that he was part of their society. And he justified all of this as medical experiments to learn more about how the human body worked. And while ultimately that may have been, quote, for the greater good, you don't dare tell someone who survived any of that that this guy was a hero. You don't dare think that this guy was a good guy. What he did was evil, but he definitely did not think that he was doing it for the sake of being evil or twirling his mustache. People have a way of justifying all kinds of evil. That's another theory that I have. You did mention to me that things are a lot different and a lot clearer to you having read the book rather than having listened to it. I kind of want to know what you mean by that. I'm interested in what you have to say. Specifically, the thing that really jumped out to me was the naming sequence, where he's trying to discover the name or decide on a name more accurately for Master Ash. In all of the instances where Kvothe has done some manner of naming, it's always about letting go of this conscious mind, this waking mind, and embracing the sleeping mind that perceives things as they are. Whether that's with Ari or with Ketsalin. And we see that here as well, where his mind just kind of wanders a little bit and he lets it do that. He kind of just plays with it. He's not trying to inflict sense upon it. He's just letting it be. So I think that's where that naming part comes into play. So that's my thought. What are your thoughts on Denna's involvement with this? I think she is being groomed as an intelligence asset by someone. We don't know 100% if it is the Chandrian or the Amir or some sort of bizarro conspiracy or some nation-state actor. She's clearly being groomed to gather intelligence, to provide information, and keep secrets, which fits with her background as a courtesan. She naturally finds her way into positions where she can gather information, and the ability to remain discreet is important. Being a court musician, or being a musician that goes to events such as weddings, gives you a little bit of anonymity, while also giving you access to a lot of places that common folk just wouldn't be able to go. Yeah, one of the cushiest positions that a musician could get in the Middle Ages was as a royal lullaby singer. This would be someone who would be close to the royal family, who would be in a position just to overhear things. And those people were oftentimes used as intelligence assets for other powers. Again, I don't know the exact goal that they're looking for, but clearly they want to use her ability to charm people and then also to perform so there's something about music where while it is revealing the performer or something about the performer, it also is a way to sort of hide in plain sight who that performer really is because you stop thinking of them as a person and you see them as this performance. Who they actually are becomes background, which would be incredibly useful for someone looking to gather state secrets or to infiltrate a secret society or any number of other things. It's why people have always been suspicious about actors and musicians and the like, where it's considered a low profession, because it's seen as lying, because the people who did it, oftentimes to make money, ended up selling secrets and the like, and 
practicing the art of pretending to be someone else. So yeah, there's definitely room for something nefarious. Of course, the flip side of this is the role of the jester, because jesters, or court fools, had a unique capacity to tell the truth to the people in power without fear of consequence. And so oftentimes they were the voice of the commoner able to actually speak up for what something might do to the actual folk who might be able to tell the king something that would be difficult to hear from someone else. But again, that truth was oftentimes hidden behind a performance of silliness. So just some thoughts. I think they're good thoughts. Oh, good. And so with that, I believe it's time for us to talk about our Frenemos. I would agree. However, before we get into that, I would like to extend a request to our audience. If you have any theories, if you like ours, if you like other theories that you know of, if you have suggestions for ways that you'd like us to delve into Master Ash's identity or why Denna was even there. This is a very theory-heavy episode and a very theory-inspiring chapter. We would enjoy hearing what you have to say. And if you think that we are full of horse shirt, please let us know. Absolutely. And as always, we're also collecting Bat Country theories for our Patreon-only Bat Country Theory podcast. That'll be coming out on the Equinox. Which is September 22nd, and... We know that the time is a little short at this point. I think that this one comes out in the middle of September-ish. It's being recorded in August and I am bad with dates. But I think this might be your last chance to message Will at Tepish on Twitter. It's T-E-P-P-E-S-H. And let him know some of the theories that you have that encompass the amount of book we have gotten through thus far. Operators are standing by. Operators are Will. Yes, yes they are. Don't send them directly to our Tales from the Waystone Twitter because that is me and Will wants to shock and awe moi with his insane theories. We'll be playing a game where she'll have to try and guess whether it was a theory from the fan community or one that I just made up on the spot. And this is available to listen to on our Patreon, should you wish to sign up. Lots of fun. Anyway, let's move on. So, it was kind of tricky to get a Ferdimos this week. We only had a few options. First, there was Quoth, but it's never Quoth. Then there was Denna, who was only slightly more wise than Kvoth. Then we've got the barman, who was rude and demanding. And so we're really left with, just by the process of elimination, the farmer who gives them a lift to Bororil. <laughs> okay. <laughs> please, please mental gymnastics this into a very good for Nemos, please. So, for one thing, he offered Quoth and Denna a respite for their feet without any expectation of reciprocity. And part of that is because he knew that what he was offering cost him nothing. He recognized, literally, he could just drop them off, it would help them along their way, and it wouldn't cost him anything to do so, so he did it. And at the same time, he neither pried into their business nor unloaded on them his business. I mean... How many people complain about their Uber drivers? Right. You know, like when we could go out of our houses. Yes, back in the before times. <laughs> <sighs> but I can appreciate that. Nothing wrong with being circumspect. So yeah, that was who I chose. I'll accept that. All right, and it is your turn for an interesting fact this week. It is. So at the beginning of this chapter, Quoth mentions that Denna makes a beeline to the door. And that kind of got me wondering, what are the origins of that term? So as it turns out, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, the noun beeline does not refer to the zigzag patterns of bees that they take from flower to flower, 
but rather a straight line between two points on the Earth's surface, such as a bee was supposed to instinctively take in returning to its hive. Simple enough. So researchers have confirmed through observation that bees do tend to go in a straight line back to their hives when they've got nectar to bring home. But the researchers were stumped as to how the bees knew so accurately where home was. There are debates about whether they navigated by the sun or if they have a mental map, you know, maybe electromagnetics or some other method. Current research does tend to support the mental map theory best and to support their theory or to test their theory, a lot of researchers, I guess, have anesthetized bees so that they become disoriented and can't actually navigate by things like electromagnetics or the sun. And they still go home. Poor little bees. And they have little to no difficulty in doing it. Interesting. There's also a competing theory about the etymology of said beeline noun, saying that it's the bees going from their hive to their food source. However, researchers believe that the reason that the bees can go directly to their food source is because other bees who come home have told them where to go. So you have managed to bridge both etymology and entomology into a single fact. And I found that charming. <laughs> Thank you. So yes, I'll give it to you this time. Even though it was a little bit light? No raspberries for you. Aren't you happy? Quite. Excellent. And with that, it's time for us to share our seven words. This week I've got seven words from the book. You have plenty to choose from. Oh, I am spoiled for choice. Like you, I was just going through it like crazy, and it was literally just like you could put your finger down anywhere on any given page and find a seven-word sentence if you looked for it. So here's what I've been able to find. Just a small sampling of the ones I found. I'm sure there are many more. When did you leave it for me? I just haven't used the window lately. Silly of me to assume you would. How do you know he's a gentleman? Just make up a name for him. You don't need to go over there. He has a way of signaling me. The university does that sort of thing? You eat the core of your apple. Looks like I'm destined to be loveless. This is more like driftwood than timber. That's something you don't see every day. Your patron's body might be up there. There's a lot of ground to cover. Hidden, valuable, much sought, and seldom found. You're never where I look for you. You appear all unexpected, like a rainbow. I'm out of sorts all the time. It gives us a place to start. Maybe later I'll sing for my supper. I could really do with a drink. And the one I ultimately chose, there you go with seven words again. <laughs> Which I will note is surrounded. It's right smack in the middle of two other seven word sentences. Looks like I'm destined to be loveless and you do realize you always do that. Yeah, there's a lot of that. <laughs> then I got closer and smelled smoke. Now you're just being flippant. Try again. Yeah. So you can see my challenge. <laughs> yes, I can. Half a loaf is better than none, which is still one of my favorites. The farmer spoke up, breaking my reverie. It was nice just being near her. Oh my goodness. My memory was real. I wasn't crazy. Right? There's much of the fae in you. <laughs> Then I led the way through the woods. <laughs> yeah, like I say, spoiled for choice. And on that, <sighs> what's your seven words from life? Actually, I want to talk a little bit about why you chose There You Go with Seven Words Again. <laughs> because I'm a sucker for meta-commentary. Yep. <laughs> and I think Denna enjoys a little bit of that. Like, when she finds out that Kvothe is always thinking about seven words to make someone fall in love, she kind of plays with that, and... I would counter. I don't think he's thinking that. I just think he does it, kind of the way he names people. When he brought that up to her, I think she took it as a challenge and as a way to just be silly. I think she did it just to poke at him a little bit, and she enjoys it. She enjoys the challenge. I think she likes the wordplay. She's also quite good at 
hearing the cadence of what seven words sounds like. Something that I am not as good at because you have said things that you later go, and that was seven words. And I'm like, uh-huh. Right. Yeah, that. Mm -hmm. Yep. Anyway, now it's my turn. Yes. And as is so often the case, my seven words actually come from something you said this morning. While this is true, it's not helpful. <laughs> You've actually said this a few times this week. <laughs> if I point something out to you where you're like, okay, I get it. You're right. Doesn't help. <laughs> But yes, you said that to me this morning. I don't know why you said it this morning. I don't know what I did to elicit that, but I found it very funny. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I did. And on that note, since I don't think we have much more to say about that, I would like to thank our audience for listening to us. And I would like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. Join us next week on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss chapters 73 and 74 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of legendary accretion. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. So fun fact, if you are a fan of Minecraft and of the Jurassic World universe, the Minecraft Jurassic World DLC that was just released, Shawnee did the music for that. And... We could not be prouder of her. It's just, ah, it's amazing. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> Audio production and editing for this episode and all of our episodes, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. I also do all of the marketing and social media coordination and all of that wonderful jazz that I have forgotten off of our script. Sorry. And project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, we would really appreciate it if you would go over and visit our Patreon, patreon.com slash waystonepod, and maybe sign up to give us a tip every month or something if you want to. It's all kinds of fun, and we have plenty of things that I think you'll like to see. And with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. not a thing we do right now oh i was like did i say something wrong <laughs> no you're doing something wrong why are you doing this i don't know we don't ding until the end and this is not the end this is not the end bear <laughs> what fork what fork <laughs> this is not the end bear hmm. fork fork what fork what fork <laughs>